has this pandemic changed us as people? Will we keep wearing masks uh, even to protect us against the regular colds and flus in future? Will we gather to socialize in exactly the same ways that we did before? And how has this pandemic changed us as a society? How has it changed us as a church uh, and as a congregation? Will we ever go back to in-person meetings, uh, driving across town to meet in the church basement for a committee meeting instead of on Zoom? Will we maintain our online worship feed uh, live stream indefinitely from now on? And will everyone come back to church into this sanctuary? Our world is changing rapidly. With the war in Ukraine, the global order may be changing. Lots of things are changing. Uh, standards seem to be changing. The basis and meaning of truth seems to be changing. And it's all feeling a bit too much for me, like things are becoming unhinged. With the postmodern turn in the 20th century, we have recognized that previously held assumptions and meta-narratives, meaning overarching stories that guide a whole society, no longer have the same authority as they once did. Everything is being questioned. One of Western society's meta-narratives was Christendom and its biblical sense of history, the sense of the past, the present, and a future to come. Our societies, even secular society, operated with the assumption of a providential hand that was leading us forward toward progress and fulfillment, salvation in a sense. Another meta-narrative was secular and scientific. It was the modernist story of human reason and progress. It said that we live in a rational world, that all people agree on the facts. It told us that science and technology would ultimately solve our problems, that we could successfully engineer the future for the good of all. Now in the Western world, at least, both of these narratives, the religious and the secular scientific, are highly contested. The majority no longer believes in the visions of religion, nor in the saving power of reason. So what is the story now? What is the overarching story to hold us together, to live by? We're not sure. With the conflict in Ukraine, it appears that the story of international human rights and the rule of law is also being questioned. Nothing is sacred, nothing is sure. Recently, I took part in uh, a Toronto Mennonite Theological Center book launch for a new book by a postdoctoral fellow entitled Post Secular History political theology, and the politics of time. 
Post-secular refers to the idea I'm mentioning here, that even the secular narrative of science and progress is in many ways a thing of the past. Well, the description of the book on the TMTC website reads as follows. Developing a post-secular critique of theopolitical periodization in six chapters, the book questions how relations of possession, novelty, freedom, and instrumentality implied in the prefix post are reproduced in post-secular discourses and the field of political theology. Does it make, does it make you want to run out and get the book? <laughs> well, if the description is any indication, I'm not confident that the book will clarify much of anything. <laughs> and I had a hard time following the discussion. Um, <laughs> what I did pick up, um, I think the author is talking about the various ways that we human beings have sought to understand and describe our history through, its, through the various lenses. The lenses of religion, the lenses of uh, political power, science, etc. We look back and we have ways of interpreting our history and, and, and making it into periods and understanding it. And I think the author might be trying to unpack some of the ways we do this and question some of the ways we do this. And it's probably interesting if one can understand it. Um, we do need to look deeply into our assumptions and how we understand ourselves and history, especially in times of uncertainty and upheaval like we're living now. But we also have to go on living and making decisions. We can't wait until scholars reach a new consensus on a new meta-narrative or until they correctly interpret the range of narratives. We're so aware that the people of Ukraine are being forced into making life and death decisions on what they will do today. Will they stay in Kyiv to fight with weapons against the enemy? Will they stay to resist in other ways? Will they flee to Poland or beyond? Leaders are having to make important decisions about how they will respond. What if chemical weapons are used? What is the red line for NATO involvement? We're all having to make decisions on how we'll engage this and other issues of our day. It's good to th think deeply and theoretically, but we can't suspend time until we come to definitive conclusions. As we continue living, we have to be grounded somewhere for the time being. And we will be grounded in some sort of belief or narrative, whether we recognize it or not. For us as Christian people in the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition, we ground ourselves in the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels and witnessed to in the rest of Scripture. This, of course, is also a contested narrative. Not everyone believes in it. 
but it's been our base and our identity for generations, and we know that it carries weight for us, even though we may have questions. And we seek to return to the story, especially in the season of Lent, trusting again that it has truth for us. So I just wanted to make a few observations on the gospel text for this morning. Luke says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. So it's very apparent that Jesus is facing resistance in his own time. He's on a mission and Herod is opposing him, even wanting to kill him. Or I was thinking you could probably look at it another way as well. You know, maybe Herod is the one who's on the mission, and he's the one facing resistance from Jesus. Herod is trying to enforce his political vision for Israel, the Roman status quo, and perhaps it's Jesus who is resisting. And then Herod reacts with violence to the resistance. Oftentimes in conflicts, it's hard to tell who is the originator, the aggressor, the first force, and who is the resistor, the second force. The West accuses Putin of being the sole aggressor. Putin accuses the West of the same thing, saying that we have not kept our post-Cold War agreements, that we pushed NATO onto his doorstep. I don't think it's so cut and dried as we often are led to believe, that one side is completely good and the other side is completely evil. There is propaganda on both sides. This, however, is no excuse at all for the sickening brutality that Putin is unleashing on Ukraine. The fact that Herod seeks to kill Jesus is evidence that Jesus is actively engaged. Uh, his vision is not just religious. It's not just a vision for the hereafter. It's about society. It's political. It's about changing the here and now. So Jesus says in response, go and tell that fox, listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will finish my work. This is not a meek and mild statement. He calls Herod a name, a fox. The Syrian fox, the native species in Palestine, is a burrowing creature that is destructive to vineyards. So Jesus uses fighting words. He says Herod is destructive. And he tells him that he won't be stopped by his threats. He's not going to back down. It sounds somewhat similar to the resolve of the Ukrainian people. We are not going to back down. We're going to stay and fight to the end. However, in Jesus' case, his method is not to arm a violent resistance. And of course, Jesus' context is not exact is not the same as the war in Ukraine. I'm not trying to make a direct parallel. In Jesus' context, 
there's, con there's social conflict, and his work is performing cures, crossing cultural boundaries, violating societal and religious norms in some cases to bring healing and relief to actual people. But the spirit of tenacity and resistance is the same as we're witnessing in Ukraine. Jesus' life is under threat, and he says, I'll continue no matter what you say or do. I'm not backing down. Then he says, yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way. Because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. And here enters the tragic dimension of the story. Jesus is not saying today, tomorrow, and the next day because it's impossible for a prophet not to celebrate the victory outside of Jerusalem. He's not proclaiming that he will win the battle against Herod. He's predicting that he will lose, that he will be killed. Here's where the whole thing starts to get strange. People generally do not proclaim their defeat ahead of time. This, I think, is where many of us lose the plot. I greatly admire what we're hearing about Ukrainian courage. But what many are saying is somewhat different from what Jesus is saying. They're saying that tomorrow, the next day, they will win. They will beat the Russians back. They will make them pay. And I'm not passing judgment here. And, and they're not all saying that. And who knows what we would do in that situation. I feel in turmoil inside when I think about it. I'm just noticing that what we usually say in our battles, whatever our battles are, is often different than what Jesus says in his battle. Then Jesus laments and weeps, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He laments that Jerusalem is not willing. We sometimes think of Jesus as the powerful son of God with miraculous powers. But here he acknowledges he has little power over Jerusalem's choices. She will choose what she chooses, even if it's a disaster, even if it's bad, even if it's bad for herself in the end. This is the great tragedy of human life and history. The tragedy, and in some way, the glory, I suppose. Glory in the sense that we do have the power and the freedom to choose. And the freedom to choose means that we can do whatever we want, even if it's evil. God will not prevent it. Putin can kill innocent civilians as he is doing right now. If things get out of hand, we could potentially destroy millions with nuclear weapons that we've all created. An incredible tragedy. In the face of this reality, the freedom to choose evil, 
Jesus' response is to weep. He does not say he will come back with his forces to take revenge. All he does is weep. And then he says, see, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you will say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is left to you. I cannot change you. You will choose what you choose. You will see what you see. But I tell you, you will not see me again until you see with new eyes. Until you see me as the one who comes from God. His statement is a reference to his coming Palm Sunday entry. But it's also a prediction of a future shift beyond that. Someday, in some unknown future, the recalcitrant city will see things differently. Someday she will understand Jesus and his way of blessing and his way as a blessing and as one who comes in the name of the Lord and not as a threat or a troublemaker. But not yet. The time of new seeing has not yet come. And for Jesus, it did not come within his lifetime. So many years after, it doesn't seem to have come in our lifetime yet either. But what we do know is that his followers caught a glimpse of the better way. And they experienced its power. And they continued in Jesus' path sensing him with them, taking the long view, being courageous, resisting valiantly and non-violently, cultivating the deeper perspective that trusts in an ultimate divine dimension. And that too is our Christian calling, our path, to tap into that life stream that alternative way of seeing and being in this world so that God's reign may indeed one day come to this earth in God's time. Amen.